The sermon text for today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You can find the passage in the blue uh, Bible in the pew on page 1787. 1787. Beginning at verse uh, 1, chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia. And I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Here ends the reading. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. If I uh, haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here at Elmwood. Um, if you haven't grabbed a pew Bible in front of you, or if you don't have your own Bible, go ahead and grab one of those and open up uh, to that chapter of Philippians that we heard read. I am looking forward to getting back into the sermon series a little bit. Uh, it was nice to take a little bit of a break, but we're going to bring it to a close over the next few weeks as we get into this last chapter. But let me pray, and then we will rejoice in what God has for us in his words. So, Father, thank you for the great privilege it is to be able to open your word and see your revelation to us. Lord, we pray that as we dive into this, that by your spirit you would do a great work in our hearts that you would direct us toward your son, that you would be made much of and that you would ultimately be the one to teach us, that we may be led to worship of you and that we may bless those around us and love those around us in your name. pray all of this in the name of our Messiah and all God's people said, amen. I'm gonna start out this morning uh, by painting uh, kind of a a picture for us, a little bit of an illustration. And as I talk about this, I I wanna invite you to just kind of imagine this going on in your head, and then I'm gonna have a question for us after this. So try and imagine this with me. Imagine that you are a part of the workforce and, and you walk into a building for a meeting one morning and you sit down with those gathered there. And you're trying to chat with those who are at the table, and it's really clear that they kind of have their own huddles, and you end up feeling excluded. But very quickly after that, uh, you have two leaders of the meeting, of of the company or organization. They come in, and they sit down, and you're like, okay, we're finally going to get this meeting started. And you start to work through the agenda, and very quickly, it becomes clear that they would rather talk about what they care about rather than kind of go with the agenda and the mission at hand. After the meeting is over, they get up and they walk into another room, and you're trying to chat with other people, you're listening to them talking, and it's clear that they are are bickering more than they're actually getting along. And then you look over and you see kind of through the glass wall, you see those two leaders And they're having a screaming match in their office over how the meeting actually went. Let me ask you a question. Who would want to be a part of something like that? Nobody wants to be a part of that? There's got to be some people that like conflict enough. (laughs) Well, neither would I. 
right? I, I don't think any of us would like to be a part of that. That is not the type of place where we would like to work. That's not the type of social interaction that we would like our kids to be observing. And that is certainly not the type of ethic and interaction that we would like to embody as a church community. And yet this morning, that kind of disunity and that type of dysfunction is the very thing that is threatening this Philippian church today. As I mentioned, we're, we're getting back into the, this Philippian sermon series. We took that break for Lent, and then we had the short series on, on money, asking us what the, the scriptures uh, say about money and how we steward our resources well. And today, we're starting in chapter 4, verse 1. And as you probably heard read, we are jumping kind of right into an application point of the text, with a lot of things leading into it. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, does this thing in all of his letters where he goes between theology and application. Theology and application. What we know to be true about God and who he is and what he's done, and then application, how we should actually respond to who he is and what he's done. And so we've seen this throughout the letter, where God has called the church to be willing to suffer because Jesus was willing to suffer for them on the cross. We see that that Paul calls this church to humility because Jesus humbled himself and and took on flesh for them and lived the life that they could not. And most recently, he's kind of talked about their identity at the end of chapter three, where he's told told them that they are heavenly citizens and they are destined for glory because because of what Jesus has done. And so this is how he calls them to respond. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. So everything we are going to look at this morning, and actually much of what you're going to look at next week, kind of is under this umbrella. So keep this in mind of this is how this church is called to stand firm in the Lord. There's only one issue. They cannot stand firm if they can't get along. And what's clear from the text is that there are two kind of leaders who are caught in a stalemate. They can't come to an agreement. And Paul sees this as a a distraction from the gospel itself. And so he starts to kind of unpack some of that baggage with them, helps them to try and sort with it so that they can really focus on what matters. Unity in the gospel. This is the biggest deal for them. Now, this issue of being distracted from what really matters at the end of the day, I don't think that that's just true of them. I think that that is often true of us. I think that is a threat that we oftentimes have to deal with because we live in a world where there are a million things trying to get our attention and they're all trying to tell us what is most important. And if we are not careful and discerning about the way we navigate this, we can very easily get distracted from making Jesus the centerpiece and the foundation of our life. And if we are not abundantly cautious, we will end up divided because we've strayed away from making Jesus that foundation. And so today, Paul's going to kind of paint this picture of how God's people can actually have lasting unity, unity that doesn't just bless us in this room, but will actually go out and bless the world around us. So this is the question that we're going to ask this morning, okay? Let's see if I can get this thing working here. There we go. There we go. How can we be unified around what really matters? Okay, we're going to ask ourselves this. How can we be unified around what really matters? Okay, so here is the first way that we do this. We do it by engaging each other in the context of community. 
So as we dive in, we see that these ladies, they have a, a, disagree, a disagreement. Now, if you read the, the scholarly literature, it's really clear that the answer that the scholars give to what this disagreement is, is we have no idea. Okay, there's not clarity on what they're disagreeing on, but they can't seem to get along. And because Paul addresses this personally, it is pretty clear that these are leaders in the church. Because one of the things that he does in his other letters is he very rarely addresses people by name. If there is a conflict, if there is some sort of issue, he will usually address the conflict or issue and leave the people anonymous. But that is not what he does here. He calls them out, making it clear that the whole church knows what's going on. This is something that is going on right before their eyes. He's not trying to hide it. And it's clear that this is no small matter either because if Paul thinks it's necessary that he needs to address this, then this is not some like petty quarrel that two ladies are having in the church. This is something that could faction the church. This is something that could split the church at the end of the day. But what's interesting and what I want you to observe with me is that Paul does not take sides on the issue. You would expect if he is going to try and address the problem, he's going to take sides. But he doesn't actually try and solve it for them. And he doesn't give his opinion on who's right and who's wrong. Instead, he does something that's actually way more interesting than that, is he invites the church in to help them sort this out. Look with me at verse 3. We're going to be jumping around just a little bit. He says, Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, as we talk about inviting other people into our brokenness, I would imagine um, that most of us cannot imagine ever inviting anybody in to share in our dirty laundry. Why? Because many of us are Minnesotans, right? We are legitimately conflict-averse. But also, even more than that, we, we live in America. America is the, the hotbed of, of individualism, right? Our culture prides itself at putting our, our best foot forward, right? Making a name for ourselves. So why would we ever share our brokenness with other people? I think that, that's a good question for us to ask. Why would we ever consider bringing somebody into our brokenness and into our disunity? And here's the answer. Because we value church unity over being right and looking good. Right? We value church unity over being right and looking good. We do it because involving each other in our circumstances is not a threat. It's a gift. God has given us one another. Now, that doesn't mean we involve everybody in all of our situations, but it does mean that it is okay to bring other people in to help sort through something if we are doing it out of pure motives. Because when we invite people in, it actually reveals our own heart motives. You see, the scriptures tell us that we're in this together, right? For better or for worse, we, we have to sort through this together. And it's the same scriptures that tell us that our hearts are broken, that we are sinful, that we have impure motives, that we have blind spots that are often unaddressed. And so we find that there's actually wisdom in seeking unity through the community, doing this collectively because we're forced to look at ourselves and the situation more clearly. Now, I don't know about you, but... Uh, I don't like to involve others when I disagree with somebody because, honestly, it, it, it's uncomfortable. And when I'm in a disagreement with somebody, it's oftentimes hard for me to even consider the fact that they might be right. But Paul is advocating for this scenario because the, the beauty of having a third party speaking into this is it's oftentimes more objective than we are. 
And it's oftentimes not as bound to emotions as much as we are, especially when we're having a, a strong disagreement. You see, we don't involve each other because we're trying to be nosy. We don't do it because we're trying to, to, to meddle in one another's affairs. We do it because it often helps us to sort through the scenario way more effectively and way more efficiently. We do it because we have a high value for resolution and we do it because Jesus has called us to live better together. Back in chapter two, uh, there was this command by Paul and he told them that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is working in you. But if you remember what he had said after that, he gave them a way that they are called to work out their salvation. It was as a community. They were to do it hand in hand. And so here in chapter four, we're seeing them practically being called to live that out as they're sorting through kind of a, a messy situation. So here's my encouragement this morning, very simple. When you're dealing with disunity, when you have a disagreement between a brother or sister in Christ, don't do it by yourself. Don't sort that out, just you two. Invite godly counsel, invite the church community appropriately into that scenario. Now let me caveat by saying this. I don't say to only invite the church community into it because those who are not followers of Jesus are inherently stupid. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to do that because we're inviting people in who share a common value for honoring Jesus alongside with us, which at the end of the day is what we're trying to get to in the first place. So what does it look like for us to be unified around what matters? Engaging each other in the context of community. Here's the second way. We do it by extending humility despite our preferences. Extending humility despite our preferences. Now let's look at verse two. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, Tracy, I'm impressed that you nailed down these names when you, when you read them. Well done. But we've already met these ladies, right? We, we've talked about, they have some sort of disagreement. We've seen that the church community is brought in to try and help them. We've seen that Paul doesn't take a side on their issue, but here's what he does do. He makes it very clear where their unity is going to be found at the end of the day. Look at the end of verse two. It is going to be found in the Lord. So Paul is not asking them to agree on the matter, but how they are going to relate to one another despite the matter. So for those of us who've been going through Philippians, look at this language with me. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Now that should be pretty familiar to you, this language of the same mind. If you have a Bible in front of you, turn back with me to chapter two. Turn back to chapter two. This is what Paul told them. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Very literally in Greek, be of the same mind. Having the same love, being of one spirit and of one mind. Now look at verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Literally, be of the same mind as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to the, the chapter two Christ him, the centerpiece of this letter, talking about what Jesus has done for them. So this is not a new idea for them. And this is not a, a, a new idea for us, right? We, we've seen this language before. So what Paul is trying to teach them is how they are to posture themselves as they agree together. Are they called to do it begrudgingly? No. They're called to do it in the way that Jesus did it in chapter two, by extending humility. He's telling them because Jesus laid himself down for you, you must lay your preferences down for one another. So in Paul's mind, the, the matter at hand is less important than the relationship. 
and the conflict is less important than the gospel being honored in their situation here. Now, I think that we know, I think that, that all of us who have, have been around the church community long enough know that the church is a, um, I'll use the language, a, a very passionate group of people, right? We, we care about things, and when we care, we really, really care. And this is a good thing, but it is also a challenge when we find disagreements with those within the church community. It's a good thing because it's indicative of the fact that we care about what is right and that we care about what is true. But it's a challenge because if we care about what is right and true and we're disagreeing with someone that we're talking to, then maybe we start to fall into the trap of thinking they might not care as much about what is right and true. When in fact, that is not usually the case. One of the things we have to realize is that not every issue is, is a gospel issue. Not every issue is essential to salvation. There is room for, as we go through the Christian life together, for healthy disagreement over non-essential things where we can coexist together in love. Now, there are things to divide over, things that are contrary to the gospel, but that's not this conversation. That's not what we're talking about here. And that's not what Paul is dealing with. It is not a, a gospel issue. Paul is dealing with a gospel distraction. And yet he believes that it is still an important thing to address because those gospel distractions can oftentimes make us lose love for our brothers and sisters who are around us unnecessarily. We say this regularly as, as a church. We've said this up from the, the front before, but I, I just wanna reiterate this, that we are not called to be uniform. We are called to be unified. And if anybody knows our church community, community, you know that we are not uniform in the ways that we think, in the ways that we act, in, in the ways that we practice our, our Christian life all of the time, but we are unified. And that is what we are called to be doing. I, I, I just want to, to talk about a way that I've seen this play out especially well here at Elmwood, a way that I'm actually really proud of all of us and something that, that not every church community can do well. So for those of you that uh, don't know, I know many of us do, uh, Elmwood's kind of history uh, has been from the Lutheran charismatic revival back in the day. Elmwood's almost 100 years old at this point. And that is, that is a tradition uh, that baptizes babies, as the Lutheran church has, has historically done. And one of the things that's been really interesting that we've seen recently is, is many of the people that have come to worship here at Elman, have gotten plugged into the community, come from a more uh, Baptistic or, or credo-Baptist background, where the Lutheran church would baptize babies as a, a sign of covenant love and involvement. The, the Baptistic uh, community would say that baptism is reserved for those who have made a, a public and, and, and recognizable profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. But one of the most beautiful things that I have had the privilege, and John, I'm sure, has had the privilege to see here at Elmwood is two different groups of Christians from two different traditions within the Christian camp coming together and worshiping Jesus in unity. We've been able to move past that disagreement because Jesus is more important. And that is exactly what Paul is advocating for. And I just wanna say that I am abundantly thankful to be able to be a part of a church that is able to do that well, that is able to make the main thing the main thing. Let me share the last way that Paul talks about us uh, having unity around what truly matters. He says we do this by striving to see each other as brothers and sisters instead of as opponents. 
by striving to see each other as brothers and sisters instead of as opponents. Look again at verse three with me. As he's talking about the people who are in that church community, he makes a certain note right at the end to add whose names are in the book of life. Now I wanna drill down a little bit on this book of life language because there's a lot of things Paul could say at the end of this, right? He could say, I'm an apostle, I have authority, just listen to me and be unified, right? He could say something like, this is God's inspired word to you, so if you're disobeying me, you're gonna disobey God. He could say, be unified, because the matter that you guys are dealing with doesn't actually matter at all. Just move on past it, it's not that big a deal. He could say that conflict is scary, shove it under the rug, and let's just ignore that it ever happened. But that's not what he says, he brings up this idea that their names are written in the book of life. This is a theme that we see all throughout the scriptures, that the book of life is kind of this image of a a registry that God has for those who belong to him. So here's what Paul is doing. Instead of focusing on the matter, he's making sure that these two ladies and this church community are looking at each other for who they are in Jesus first. Because let's be real, when we have a disagreement, I know this is true of me. I'm oftentimes thinking of the right answer to try and prove my point instead of recognizing that Jesus was hung on a tree for you and for me. And when we recognize that, that dramatically changes the way that we sort through things. Many of us have probably heard the saying, win the person, not the argument, right? Win the person, not the argument. And I think that that is an excellent illustration of what Paul is advocating for here. Because when emotions are high, when we are are struggling to find unity around something, it is really easy to believe that the person that we are talking to is less than us. And as soon as we do that, it is downhill. It is all downhill from there. One of the cultural kind of uh, things that we've seen more frequently is is not only a, a disintegration of values, but we've seen a growth in something. We've seen a growth in the ability to dehumanize those people that disagree with us. And that is all sides of the aisle. That doesn't matter where you come from. This is a cultural trend that is popping up. And yet Paul says, if we are going to fight for what really matters, that cannot and that must not be true of us. Because what is at stake is not simply our way of life, but our gospel witness, and by extension, people's eternal state. You see, when we're fighting each other, we are not doing what Paul calls fighting the good fight of faith. We are not serving Jesus well. He brings us up in Ephesians chapter six, where he reminds this church here that, that their struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against one another in this room, but it is against the rulers, the, against the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And let me tell you this, the enemy would like nothing more than for us to be useless because we're not unified. He would love it if we were at each other's throats instead of using our voices to proclaim the gospel to one another. And to be honest, if you know me, if if you've ever been in a disagreement with me, you know that this is difficult for me as well. Oftentimes, I would rather win the argument than actually care for the person. And so I'll be real. I need to hear this as much as you all need to hear this this morning, that we are on the same team. It's really easy to forget that. We are in the same corner, 
right? Holly and I, when we, when we have a conflict, this is something we oftentimes try and remind ourselves of, that we are on the same team at the end of the day. So here's my encouragement. When you disagree with somebody, if they are a believer, before you do anything else, before you respond to them, remember that Jesus' blood has purified them as well. And if they are someone who has not yet placed their faith in Jesus, remember that nonetheless, they are made in God's image and are worthy of your dignity. They're worthy of being heard out. They're worthy of your love and your respect, even if you cannot stand their position on an issue. Because the only difference between you and them is God's mercy, is God's mercy. Let me summarize this one more time to kind of summarize everything we've talked about. What does it look like for us to be unified around what truly matters? Let's summarize it. It looks like us working together in community as we embody the humility of Jesus and see each other as friends instead of enemies. I'm gonna read that again. It looks like us working together in community, walking in the humility of Jesus and seeing each other as friends instead of enemies. As we finish up this morning, I just want us to observe, to note this fact that everything here, in light of all those application points, everything is saturated in the gospel here. The gospel is the centerpiece of what Paul is ultimately highlighting. He tells them to stand firm in Christ. He tells Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in Christ. He tells the church that belongs to Christ to get involved because they care about Jesus being the centerpiece. The reality is that at the end of the day, the gospel is the only grounds that can bring true unity to us. It is the only grounds where true unity can be restored. It's the place where we find lasting fellowship with God and with one another, not some fake temporary togetherness. The gospel helps us to stand firm because we realize that Christ has already finished the work for his people. So we don't have to feign unity. We don't have to try and come up with these strange solutions to try and pretend there wasn't disunity in the first place. But we can recognize that just as Jesus' work tore the veil in the temple, bringing down the divide, so too his work brings down every single divide that can exist between his people. The gospel forces us to a sense of humility because we see that Christ lived and died for us. And if he lived and died for us, then we couldn't have done it for ourselves. He did that because we were helpless and therefore there's no room for us to boast. So we're forced to remember that when we're having a disagreement with a brother or sister in the Lord, it is two people, not just them, but them and you who are standing there who are in desperate need of a savior. We are not self-sufficient, but completely dependent upon him. And if we realize that, that will completely change. It'll dramatically change the way that we deal with disagreements. And finally, the gospel is the very reason we sit here. It is the very reason that we come together as a family, which is a gift as we navigate this world together. We would do real well to remember that we are not a burden to each other. Yes, we're called to bear each other's burdens, but that's different than being a burden to one another because we're something different. We are, we are co-pilots in grace. We have been purchased by Christ's blood and we serve him and partner together for his kingdom. So I just want us to remember that, that all of this, this unity, 
is not something that we can muster up in ourselves. It's something external to us. It is something that Jesus has done for us. And so all the people that we sit next to regularly on a Sunday morning, that we do Christian life together with in this community that we call the church, who have been bought by Jesus' blood, we have not only been unified to him, united to him, but he has made us unified with one another. And so the way that we honor him is by honoring that unity. So let's take a few minutes. Let's reflect on that. And then we will pray and we will come to the Lord's table as an expression of that unity in what he has done for us. So let's take a minute. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by the things that we have done and by the things that we have done, have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess that even though you call us to unity, there are times where we see each other as opponents and sometimes as enemies in the gospel, losing sight of the fact that we were once your enemies that you have reconciled us to yourselves by your blood and you have called us not to fight, not to be distracted from the gospel, but to unite together in the gospel for the good of your people and for the blessing of your world and ultimately for your glory. Lord, would you help us? Would you give us supernatural unity? We praise you and we thank you for the ways over the past few years, even during a number of challenges in, in our culture at large, you have helped us to be unified together. But we confess we are imperfect in that. And Lord, we ask that in your mercy that you would forgive us. We pray that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend this and that you would draw us together in love and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name and all of God's people said, amen.